I want to thank you for your help in, in sharing that video. As of this morning, that's been viewed over 100,000 times since this Monday. And, um, you know, really a lot of the media that we, uh, that we produce goes out from this place and serves uh, as an advertisement for what God is doing here uh, in this community. We live to make Jesus famous in the Northwest. And I think one of the reasons why videos like that and others are gaining traction is because this church is giving language to things that people have felt but been able to, unable to express for so long. It's like, man, finally somebody is giving language to some of the things that I have felt or some of the things that I have desired or some of the things that I have been internally processing. And this happens in both preaching moments and worship moments and ministry moments, all in the context, not just of a Sunday morning, but really things that happen here all throughout the week. And I, I feel like over and over again, the feedback that we get as people come to this church is, this is something I have been hungry for and I didn't even know it. And when we tap into what God is doing or what he desires to do in any region of the earth, what it awakens is long put to sleep desires in the hearts of men and women to experience the renewal that comes from God alone. And scripture speaks about a river that comes from the throne of God that makes the city glad. It makes the inhabitants who dwell next to it come to life. And I so sovereign believe that in this hour, God, by his spirit, is releasing a river through this church in the Northwest, and all who touch it will be revived. And that's what we offer you here this morning, is not the excellence of speech or, or the excellence of production, but it's an encounter with a living God. And when you encounter a living God who is really good at getting out of graves, it causes every dead thing in your life to come alive. And so that's what we're selling people on. That's the dream of God in the Northwest. West, that every part of you submitted to every leadership and area of his life has an opportunity in this hour to come alive. This morning, I'm going to be sharing with you a little bit out of the gospel of Matthew, starting in chapter five, and, and then we're going to look back to the book of Genesis and, and in chapter three. But Matthew, of course, is the first book of the New Testament. The New Testament is, is 27 different books or different letters that talk about the life, uh, the birth, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, the planting of the New Testament church, and the development of church theology or ecclesiology, as the apostle Paul writes his letters to uh, the churches. And, and the book of Matthew, Matthew has the honor and the distinct privilege of coming first, and it tells us a little bit of the life and the ministry of Christ. It, we, we know very little about the life of Jesus from the age of zero to the age of 30. We know that he was born. We know the miraculous circumstances surrounding his birth. We know that wise men out of the east come to honor and worship him. We know at the age of 12, his parents forget him at church, and that's pretty much it. And then once we reach 30, there is a call into public or vocational ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. The Spirit of God, like a dove, lands upon him. He goes into the wilderness for 40 days of temptation and trial. He comes out of the wilderness filled with the power of the Spirit and thus begins three and a half years of public ministry, public teaching, and public miracles that transform the entire known world. And today we are still in the way 
wake of the ministry of Jesus. 30 years of preparation, three and a half years of impact in a world that's transformed. See, in our culture today, we want three and a half minutes of training. We want 30 years of impact and influence, and then we want the world to be changed. But the formula from scripture is a little bit different. Christ spent most of his life hidden, but it was in the hidden places that he was endued with power from on high to be everything that the Father wanted him to be. In fact, Jesus says it this way, I only do what I see the Father doing. I only say what I hear the Father saying. I only act in accordance with the expressed will and intent of the Father. And if you have seen me, you've seen him. And we want to be that type of church in this type of region. If you've seen us, you've seen an expression of the kingdom of God. That is the consummate message that becomes the obsession of Christ's public teaching. The kingdom of God is not far off. In fact, it is at hand. It is in you. It is all around you. It is expanding daily. It is expanding weekly, monthly, and yearly. Everywhere you go, you become a living embodiment of his kingdom rule, his kingdom reign, and his kingdom establishment. Friend, that is what you and I have signed up for in this hour. We're not just playing nice little church on a Sunday morning. We're not just having a nice little potluck or a religious gathering. We are kingdom people in a kingdom hour. And the kingdom suffereth violence, but the violent take it by force. Why? Because the kingdoms of this world are in fact becoming the kingdoms of our God and of our king and to the increase of his rulership and his peace, there is no end. We are a kingdom people in a kingdom hour and the kingdom is advancing by force. And when you begin to allow your life to revolve around that mandate, that what, that's what gives you express purpose for the hour in which we live. No, we're not just existing. We're not just waiting for the return of the Lord. We're not just sitting in a corner and wringing our hands about how bad the culture is becoming. No, we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We are on the right side of history. We are on the winning side of eternity. And you and I have been given a mandate in this hour to be more than observers, but instead participants in the great work of the harvest. That's what we've signed up for. I'm not just observing like a person who has bought a ticket to a sporting event. I'm not just giving my opinion, cheering when life goes my way and booing when it doesn't. No, I am a participant in the great kingdom work of the hour. There has never been a better time to be alive because the harvest is ready. It is white unto reaping. And we are quickly coming into an hour where those who harvest even overtake those who plant. We are coming into the greatest time that the church has ever known in its 2,000 year history because the best wine is not behind us and ahead of us. And in fact, scripture communicates it like this. The reign of the latter is greater than the reign of the former. Our best days are not behind us. Our best miracles are not behind us. Our best revivals are not relegated to the annals of history. No, friend, we are in the middle of one. And that's why I'm excited to be in the house of God this morning. It's more than religious exercise. It's more than checking a box to feel better about our spirituality. No, you and I are a part of the greatest coalition that there has ever been in all of history as we prepare for the soon and coming return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There has never been a better time to be alive. <laughs> yeah, I feel a conviction in this hour to keep preaching 
and keep declaring that we live in the very shadow of the return of the Lord. Fred, we live on borrowed time. It is not our life. It is his. It is not our timeline. It is his. And I believe that all of heaven is leaning in and peering in with interest as the great bridegroom gets ready for his return. And Fred, he is not returning for a wounded bride, but a victorious bride without spot or without wrinkle. And that is who we are. <laughs> There's never been a better time to be alive. The most famous sermon Jesus ever preaches is called a Sermon on the Mount. It happens in a place called the Mount of Beatitudes. It's positioned right between Capernaum and a city called Genesaret, and it overlooks the Sea of Galilee. And in Matthew 5, the crowds are following Jesus, and he calls his disciples unto himself, and he begins to teach about the ethic of the kingdom of God. In fact, if you were to go to Israel today, you could visit the Mount of the Beatitudes. In the 1930s, a Franciscan order built a chapel in that place that still stands today to commemorate the significance of the events that happened there. And I won't belabor the point by reading the entirety of Matthew 5, but many of you are familiar with the text. In Matthew 5, Jesus says things like this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers, those who are persecuted. Blessed are people. Blessed are you when people insult you and say all kinds of evil against you. If the world hated me, they'll hate you as well. But here's where things get really interesting. Jesus stops to provide context to his followers, how they should think about his teaching. And that happens in verse 17 of Matthew 5. Jesus says this. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Watch, I have not come to abolish them, but instead to fulfill them. The Beatitudes are a set of teachings from Christ that essentially say this. See these Old Testament principles? Let me bring them to their fullest application. I have come to fulfill the law and in doing so give you a new and a greater command. And of course, that command comes to us via the teaching of Christ in the 22nd chapter of the book of Matthew. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, watch, hang all the law and the prophets. Essentially, what is being communicated is this. No longer will you be made righteous by a set of ceremonial laws to follow, but instead a person to pursue whose name is Jesus. And in the pursuit of who he is, it is your faith in his saving power that declares you to be righteous and enables you to live out the ethic of Christ in the world around you. I want you to hear something this morning, friend. Grace both raises the bar and also deepens the river. I think sometimes in the way that we think about grace as it pertains to the New Testament is grace is our hall pass for when we sin. Grace is kind of our great excuse card that we get to play in every scenario or circumstance of life. 
And can I challenge your way of thinking this morning, friend? Grace is not an excuse to sin. It is an empowering presence that lives inside of you that causes you to have victory over sin. So grace is not what I utilize as some sort of bank account to pay my debt. No, it is a spirit that comes alive inside of me upon my confession of faith that causes me not to be a victim of the world around me, but an overcomer in every circumstance of life. It is not about greasy grace. It is about an empowering presence that causes you to be transformed into the image and the likeness of God. And how many of you this morning are thankful for a God who is more forgiving than you are guilty, who is more grace-filled than you are sinful, who desires mercy instead of judgment, and who says to us, you can boldly approach the throne of grace in your time of need. Watch how Jesus raises the bar. He says this in Matthew 5. You have heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, anyone who has hate in his heart will be subject to judgment. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who operates in lust has already committed adultery. You have heard it said, love your neighbor. But I tell you, also love your enemy. You have heard it said, do not break your oath. But I tell you, do not even swear an oath, but let your yes be yes and let your no be no. It's an impossible standard that you can't possibly perfectly uphold. But grace both raises the bar and deepens the river. Meaning this, God is not just after my outward obedience, but my inward transformation. Although grace is a higher standard, it's also, friend, a a deeper river. Because when I fail, not if I fail, but when I fail, I have an advocate who invites me to boldly approach in my time of need. This is the critique of Jesus to the religious leaders in the first century. He says, you are whitewashed tombs filled with dead men's bones. He said, you're a cup that has been ceremoniously cleaned on the outside, but it's corrupt on the inside. I want you to see how the narrative shifts between the old covenant and the new covenant. In the old covenant, it was the ceremonial laws of Moses, over 630 of them that focused on an outside veneer of righteousness that they hoped would translate to interior holiness, but it didn't work. In fact, it never worked. All it did was push off sin to the next generation, creating scapegoats to carry out the penalty and judgment of people people who had come before them who were lost in sin and degradation. But one day the pure and spotless lamb, Jesus Christ arrives and he says, I'm going to flip the script. It's no longer about what you do on the outside to make the inside pure, but instead what you do on the inside that transforms everything else around you. And so Jesus says, by my spirit, I will come alive inside of you. And what it will cause is a transformation of heart, soul, mind, and strength which will translate to your sphere of influence being dramatically impacted by the encounter that you've had. It's no longer an exterior law to somehow motivate an interior desire, but instead an interior spirit that daily transforms you into the image and into the likeness of Christ Jesus. Some people think righteousness looks like not giving in to your carnal desires. But friend, living your whole life just managing your desires sounds pretty terrible to me. Following Jesus is not just about the modification of my behavior or the management of my sin. It is about the development of my deepest 
desire. Friend, there is something beyond religious duty, and it is spiritual desire. And when your spiritual desire begins to overtake every part of who you are, that's where true transformation begins. Isn't it interesting that scripture says the Lord loves a cheerful giver? Now, just to be clear, the church loves any type of giver, but the Lord, (laughs) the Lord loves a cheerful giver. See, I think you're blessed when you obey, but I think you're doubly blessed when you cheerfully obey because God isn't about just the performance of my flesh, but the development of my desire. See, when I cheerfully obey, when I cheerfully give, when I cheerfully serve, when I cheerfully show up, what I'm signaling is that there has been something that has been developed in the deepest part of who I am. No longer do I process faith through the things that I have to do, but instead I now process my life through the things that I get to do. I've been invited into the pursuit of who he is. I'm not obeying because I have to. I'm obeying because I want to. And God has transformed even my deepest desires. It reminds me of that old story of a child who gets in trouble and is told to go sit in the corner and the parent goes to check on them to see if they're sorry for what they've done. And the child responds, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. But I think that perfectly describes where a lot of people end up getting caught in their faith. Fine, I'll do it, but I don't want to. Fine, I'll show up, but I'm not going to be happy about it. Fine, I'll obey, but I'm not really interested in it. Come on, what if we treated marriage like that? You wake up in the morning and turn to your spouse and you say, I'm not going to cheat on you today, but I want to. I guess I'll be faithful, but it's only because I have to. Your marriage probably won't last very long, or if it did, it probably wouldn't be very good. But many of us have that type of relationship with this type of God. Fine, God, I'll do it, but I'm not going to be happy about it. And what happens when you cheerfully enter into obedience is it signals to the Lord, even my deepest desires have been transformed. One of my favorite titles for the Lord in the Old Testament is that he is the desire of the nations. Friend, do you know that desire is a necessary ingredient in discipleship for even Jesus says, all those who desire to follow me first pick up your cross. All of those who desire, sometimes in church, we make it the job of the pastor or the job of the staff to do the work of discipleship in our hearts, in our lives, and in our families. And I've said this before, but let me reiterate, it's not my job to reach your neighbor, it's yours. It's not my job to disciple your family, it's yours. And sometimes we make it the role of everybody else's desire to do things in our life that we don't really want to do. But I'm here to challenge you this morning to be wrapped out of religious duty and into spiritual desire that the desire of the Lord would overtake you like it was prophesied about Jesus in the book of Zechariah the zeal for the Lord overtook him there's something that God invites us to it's not just checking a box it's not just showing up it's not just checking the attendance record but entering into cheerful obedience God I'm here because my desire has been set on you If we enter into his gates with thanksgiving and praise, what do we enter into when we operate with complaints and negativity? 
If thankfulness and praise is the highway that gets me into the inner courts, what is complaints and negativity leading me towards? Sometimes we feel like we get extra credit by serving a God who we think hates us. And because of fractured theology, we have this picture of a God who is supremely angry with people that scripture says he loves. And yet scripture says he is the father of lights. And watch, he delights in his children. Here's the problem. If we view God through the lens of a deity who hates to love us, but he's forced to love us because of covenant, that's the way that we'll treat our relationship with him as well. I don't want to love you, but I guess I have to. I don't want to serve you, but I guess I have to. I don't want to obey, but I guess I have to. Friend, there is a double blessing that comes upon your life when you move from have to to get to. It's not just my duty, it's my desire. There's a desire piece in my heart that God has developed. I don't need to be conjoled or begged or convinced. Some people live their whole lives liking to be convinced by other people to do the right thing or pursue the right person. And can I tell you, being convinced to do the right thing is not a sign of intellect, but instead of immaturity. I don't need to be convinced by anybody else. No, I've set my desire. My face is a flint towards Zion. I refuse to be moved. No, there's a desire in my heart to know him and to make him known. Remember the woman caught in the act of adultery and the Pharisees say the law of Moses says to stone her, but what say you? And Jesus, by his action, says, I am the fullest expression of everything the law intended, so let me show you another way. It was the reset of the cultural expectation of the religious class. Jesus says, I am the truth. And because of that, you must understand all of life from my perspective. In the Old Testament, the law was the truth. But in the New Testament, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And friend, no man comes to the Father except by Him. And can I expose a subtle danger in our world today? There is a movement in Christianity that seems to love Jesus but hate His Word. Can we put that picture on the screen, Donnie? Let, let me just show you this morning some of what I'm talking about. When we say Jesus is the way, what we're talking about is our ontological formation. Jesus is what exists. When we say Jesus is the truth, we're talking about our epistemological formation, meaning this, he is how we know about what exists. And not only that, when we say Jesus is the life, we are saying he is our axiological formation. He is how we live out what exists. But see, friends, there's a movement today that loves to idolize the way, but hates the truth. They see Jesus as a wise teacher who said really philosophical things about the ethereal nature of love. But as soon as the truth of scripture begins to impact or in an abrasive manner work against our preconceived ideas, notions, humanity, carnality, or secular spirit, all of a sudden we reject the truth but in a sense, say we still love him. And Jesus says, how, how can you love me unless you do what I say? 
You can't have a love for him and a hatred for his words. But we live in a world that has over-compartmentalized these spiritual realities. No, I appreciate that Jesus is the way, but he's not the truth and he's not the life. Or sometimes we think about him as the way, but we live as functional atheists. We're not atheists theologically, but we're atheists functionally. Meaning, I believe in God theologically, but it doesn't have any sort of axiological production in my life. It doesn't impact the way I interact with the world around me. It's really just a private faith. No, it's really just a private relationship. You know, religious stuff, that's really private. That's just between me and the Lord. No, the whole reason Jesus came to earth is because it's not just between you and the Lord. It's between you, the Lord, and a world that you owe an encounter with Jesus Christ. He's not just the way. He's the truth, and he's the life. Jesus alone has the authority to determine what is true, and he outlines the path towards what is righteous. Jesus is what exists. Jesus is how I know about what exists. Jesus is how I live out what exists. And no man comes to the Father except by him, which means this. I don't approach God on my terms. I approach him on his. And friend, there is no other name under heaven by which men must be saved outside the name of Jesus. You are not saved by wokeness. You are not saved by whiteness. You are not saved by politics or culture. You are not saved by riches or poverty. You are not saved by good works or great intellect. You aren't saved by confessing your privilege to the mob, but instead by confessing your sins to Christ and placing your faith in his saving power. Let me reinterpret what the rich young ruler says to Jesus, but in our context today. But I have posted all the right hashtags. I've donated to all the right causes. I followed all the right protocols. I attended all the right rallies. I used all the correct pronouns. I followed all the rules of culture since I was a small child. But until you forsake all to follow Jesus, you're not worthy to be his disciple. Friend, that's what I'm challenging you to do. Forsake all to follow Jesus. This isn't radical Christianity. It's Christianity 101. Oh, pastor, you're preaching pretty radical. No, it's basic. Paul calls it your reasonable service to offer yourself as a living sacrifice unto a holy God. No, it's reasonable Christianity. It's Christianity 101. This is where it starts. I have forsaken all to follow Jesus. He is what is ultimately true, ultimately good, and ultimately right. Not just about my life, but about my surroundings. We've forsaken all to follow him. See, we live in a culture that's love drunk on syncretism. I'm going to mix in a little bit of everything else to make this faith a little bit more attractive. The gospel doesn't need your help to be relevant. It's relevant because Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father and holds the very nations in his hand and will soon come to judge the wicked and the dead. Oh, come on, friend. Let me preach this morning just a little bit. I'm stirred up this morning. Come on, we serve a resurrected Savior. We serve the living word and the living truth, the firstborn of all creation. This Jesus is worthy of all praise and honor and affection in the church, both now and forever. And to God be the glory.
let me preach for a minute. Genesis 3, watch. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did not say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. I want you to notice something this morning. When sin entered into the world, how the dialogue began was questioning the things that God had said. Can you resist the temptation to dig up and doubt what you've planted in faith? Can you resist the temptation to operate in doubt in accordance with the things that God has said in the midst of trial, terror, circumstance, or political pressure? Did God really say, no, you won't die? Are you sure God said don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good? Are you sure you heard him correctly? Well, you know, in the original Hebrew, it could be translated this way. Are you really sure? Come on, we've used semantic tricks and broken and fractured hermeneutics to try to talk ourselves out of believing that God actually says what he means and means what he says. Jesus doesn't need my help to make the gospel more attractive. It already is. It's already the answer to every longing question in the heart of men and women all across our globe. And how sin enters into the world is a question asked by a deceiver to challenge the authority and the truth of God. Friend, the issue was not that the snake was speaking. The issue was that Eve was listening. I can't control the voice of the enemy, but I can guard the voices that I'm listening to. Isn't it interesting that the first sin ever to be committed is a direct result of doubting what God has said? You won't die, it's just a little compromise. You won't die, it's just a little deconstruction. You won't die, it's just a little witchcraft. You won't die, you're just taking a break from God. You won't die, you're just entertaining another version of truth. The author of death always has to lie about what your outcome will be in order to get you to follow his path because he's the accuser of the brethren, because he has come to steal, kill, and destroy. But those things never announce themselves as they actually are. Sin doesn't knock on your door and announce itself as death. It announces itself as approval or freedom. But it leads to bondage and deception. And watch what happens in verse 5. Enemy speaking, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband Adam who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. One translation says, and they suddenly felt shame. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Adam and Eve eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and in doing so, pledge their allegiance to self-determination. Friend, God didn't restrict the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because he wanted Adam and Eve to be dumb. He restricted the tree of the knowledge of good and evil because it represented an inferior truth. 
Adam and Eve, when they ate of the tree, were making this statement. I alone will determine what is good and true for my life. Our culture has said to God, we will eat of the tree of self-determination and you will bless our disobedience or else we will curse you. But here's my question for the church this morning. How many times do we consult snakes to determine what is true or good about God, life, or culture? Now, I know social media has an opinion. I know news and politics has an opinion. I know family systems and culture has an opinion. But I worship the very embodiment of truth, and his name is Jesus. And every other lesser form of information bows to this existential reality. I can't afford to get my truth from a talking snake. I can't afford to get my truth from an offended Christian. I can't afford to get my truth from a secular humanist. I can't afford to get my truth from an unhealed person. I can't afford to get my truth from hypocritical politicians. I can't afford to get my truth from things that crawl on the ground when God has a perspective that encapsulates the mountaintops. For Fred, he is the author and the finisher, which means he has seen my beginning from the end. And when they realized what they had done, the Bible says suddenly, suddenly, suddenly shame and fear came upon them. But a chapter earlier in Genesis 2, it says they were naked and unashamed. Hear me, when you consult snakes, it causes you to look on what is natural as if it were shameful. Let me end here. Society has taught you to be ashamed of your gender, ashamed of your race, ashamed of your body, ashamed of your family, ashamed of your culture, ashamed of the nation you were born into or the neighborhood you live in because we live in a world that has weaponized shame in an attempt to reframe your value system. But I won't allow fake shame to reframe God's truth. Aren't you glad this morning that you are not the sum total of either your mistakes or the sum total of your accomplishments? Oh, that's such a refreshing word to hear in the midst of a culture that all it says is hustle, hustle, hustle. Make a name for yourself. Build a platform for yourself. Gravitate influence unto yourself. Make it all about you with a little Jesus on the side. No, the God that I serve says, Russell, you're not the sum total of your mistakes, but you're also not the sum total of your accomplishments. Instead, you are everything that I have declared to be true about your life, your circumstances, and your worldview. That's the type of God that we serve. That's what you're being invited into, to submit everything that you are to everything that he is. It's not enough for me to be wor to worship Jesus on Sunday and then be discipled by the culture on Monday. No, friend, the stakes are too high. Eternity is at stake. Our world hangs in the balance. It's not enough for me to sing a nice worship song on a Sunday and then be discipled in Babylon Monday through Saturday. No, Jesus is the way. No, Jesus is the truth. No, Jesus is the life. And no man comes to the Father except through him. Come on, would you stand as we close this morning?